0: live in a very unique moment in our culture. Uh, one of the uh, social philosophers, Charles Taylor, a Catholic, had, had defined our age as being dominated by what he called expressive individualism. And this is an understanding that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that we are called to live that out, to express that. Rather than to conform to models that are imposed by others, especially by institutions. As an example, one writer wrote in a blog uh, Losing My Identity, they said this in struggling to find my identity, I realized that I create my own identity. This is the most valuable lesson that I have learned. When I let go of the need to define myself, I can choose any definition I want. By accepting that I am not limited by any notion of identity, I liberate myself to just be me. Right here, right now, I'm choosing my identity by how I am choosing to spend my time. In this very moment, I am creating myself, and this is my identity." End quote. And that really captures our current cultural moment. For me to be authentic, I need to be who I am. And no one should be able to tell me what I can or cannot be. I must be able to express my own innate sense of myself. Nothing demonstrates this more clearly than transgenderism. California is in the process right now of uh, voting on legislation that will make take parental rights away from parents who do not agree with the gender of their child because the child should be able to express whatever they feel whatever they want these ideals are born out of the enlightenment i think therefore i am and this has led of course this has crept into the church and, of course, it has led to a diminishment of the concept of the covenant. We are so individualistic that we have a hard time even understanding the biblical concept of covenant, let alone interpreting it correctly. How could a parent choose the religion of its child? How could it impose religion upon them? How could it baptize them? Forcing an identity on them. We're going to baptize the Herbert children this morning. But why? Why are we baptizing these children? My very simple point throughout this sermon is that children of the covenant, as heirs of the covenant promises... Children born to believing parent or believing parents are entitled to receive the sign and seal of the new covenant, which is baptism. Children are heirs of the promises. And if they're heirs of the promises, then they should be given the sign of the promises, which in the new covenant is baptism. So over the next few minutes, I want to unfold what I mean by that, by looking at a few texts Starting, uh, of course, first with Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 37. Now let me set the stage for you. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. He has, uh, uh, they have been just recently filled with the Spirit. They've poured out into the streets, filled with the Spirit. They're speaking in all the tongues, all the different languages of the people who have been scattered throughout the diaspora. And the Jews gathered there to celebrate the feast of Pentecost, hear the mighty works of God declared in their own language. And because they cannot make sense of how that is, they find the only solution. They must be drunk. Right? Although I've never met a drunk person who got smarter when they were drunk. (laughs) But they're babbling and they're speaking in languages and they can't Understand how this could be. And Peter stands up and he makes his defense. He lays out several Old Testament texts, beginning with Joel chapter 2, and then looking at how the promise of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he ends his sermon with this application. In verse 37 it says, Now when they heard this, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your covenant promises which are enduring, they are everlasting because they are formed on a solemn promise. And you who are God, who are immutable, cannot change. You promised to be our God and we would be your people. And you made the same promise to our children that you would be their God. And they would be your people. Be faithful to your promises, O Lord. And as we see them unfolded in your word, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. And amen. I want to very briefly, I promise, briefly, because we're going to begin in Genesis. And we're going to go all the way through the Old Covenant. But I promise it will be brief. And I want to show you the old covenant promises all the way to its fulfillment in the new. Because as Peter says, the promise is for you. What promise is he referring to? What is he speaking about? And how does that connect with his uh, his, uh, application? What he calls them to do. He says, repent and be baptized for the promises for you and for your children. Our text, which is an application of his sermon, because the people have realized they are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. And how did they come to that? How did they come to that conclusion? They were cut to their heart. Which, by the way, is a work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can open blind eyes. Only the Spirit can enliven those who are dead to see that it was me that crucified Christ. It was me that hung Him there. It was me that shouted, crucify Him. Only the Holy Spirit of God working on hearts to circumcise them. To cut open their hearts to be able to respond and say, what do we need to do to be saved? That is the work of the Spirit. It's a circumcision without hands, which we'll talk about in a moment. But for our our purposes, I want to focus on just verse 39. And what is this promise? The promise begins in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, God had created man and placed him in a perfect place, a garden. And He called him to be fruitful and to multiply and to cultivate it. He was to reign under the authority of God, being a king and a priest over the whole world. He was to listen and rule according to the voice of God. But instead of that, he listened to the voice of the serpent. And he ate from the tree of which God said to not eat from. And because of that, because He, functioning as our head and representative, He plunged all of humanity into sin and misery. And in the curse, in the curse because of that sin, God gives us the first glimpse of this promise. The first exposition of the gospel, the proto-euangelion. He says in verse 15 of chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's speaking to the serpent here as he curses him. And and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. In this very simple glimpse, he gives a promise that yes, there will be enmity between these two seeds between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman but one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of that serpent delivering his people from sin that is a covenant promise but what is a covenant covenant is not it's not in our everyday normal language if we do think about covenant maybe we think of marriage marriage being a covenant it's a it's it, but a covenant formally binds parties together in a relationship, an enduring relationship. That's why I use the word binds. It binds parties together in a relationship with stipulations, offering blessings and curses, and is often administered with an oath, with an oath ceremony. We'll unpack what that means as we continue to walk through redemptive history to see how God comes. He binds Himself in a relationship to man, entering into that relationship through covenant to, to offer to us blessings for those who obey the terms, who keep covenant with the Lord, and promising curses for those who do not. The question is, how can we... As sinful humans, made in the image of God so we have dignity, but marred by sin, how can we ever be in a relationship with God? How can a transcendent and holy and awesome God ever be in relationship with us as sinful men? And the answer, the confession tells us, is by way of covenant. God voluntarily comes down He voluntarily condescends to enter into that binding relationship with us, to call us and take us to be His own and to make Himself our God. In the ancient Near East, the covenant was a very uh, normal part of everyday lives. The covenants were... uh, Often enacted between two parties, especially of unequal status. You could think of someone who was a king entering into a covenant with other people who would come under his protection as a king. He would promise them certain blessings. I will be a king to you. I will guard and protect you. And the only thing I ask of you is that if I go out to war, you go with me and fight in battle. And if you do not, if you're not faithful to this covenant, then the curses will come upon you. And often the curses were visually enacted. Sometimes animals would be torn in two and laid upon the ground. And the two parties would walk in between them, saying that if we do not keep the terms of these covenants, then let that happen to us. Let us be torn in half if we do not keep this covenant. We'll see that in in the Abrahamic covenant, found in Genesis 15. But Adam, he, he failed to keep the stipulations of the covenant. God had made a covenant with him. He said, don't eat of this tree. But he ate from it. Did God just abandon him? Did God abandon his program of taking dominion of the whole world, of making it fruitful and spreading his image everywhere? No, he doesn't stop there. He makes another covenant. First with Noah. He reiterates the same covenant, calling him to be fruitful and to multiply and subdue and rule over the world. But even Noah was not faithful. He failed to keep the terms of the covenant. He was, uh, his nakedness was uncovered by his sons, or at least his son. And Canaan is cursed because of that. And so again we see man is unable to keep the terms of the covenant man is unable to be faithful to God. God is faithful, but men continue to fail and to fall so far short of keeping up God's holy and righteous standards. And it is not until God calls Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis that we see the gracious character of God come to the forefront. And a, over several chapters, specifically chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17, the covenant that God enters into, that relationship that God enters into with Abraham, is unfolded for us with two different ceremonies. It's one and the same covenant, but God is showing different aspects, both of His character, of who He is, but also what He's calling Abraham to do. Now, if you'll remember, in Genesis to, or I'm sorry, Genesis twelve, verse two, he says this to Abraham. He makes this promise as he, he calls him to come out of Ur and go to the land of promise. And he says this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God builds his, char- his covenant, this relationship, on his very character, who he is. In chapter 15, God reiterates these same covenant promises, but he adds that he will bless Abraham with an heir who would come from him, his own son, not a servant in his house. And then he, he formally ratifies that covenant with a ceremony. He calls on Abraham to split the animals and lay them out. But instead of, in the most astounding way, instead of making Abraham to walk in between those, God Himself walks in between them. In a a smoking fire pot. And a flame uh, reminding us of what will happen later with the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke with Israel in the wilderness. God Himself takes on Himself a curse, saying, if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant, then a curse will be on me. God is swearing by Himself because there is no one greater for Him to swear on. I will see these promises fulfilled and nothing can stop them. And again, he reaffirms the covenant in verse in chapter 17 which we read in our old testament lesson and there he he changes the name of abram to abraham a much more fitting name because he is going to be the father of many nations he's reminding him that from him would come many and through him would the blessing go to all the world but for our purposes And what Peter is drawing from is found in verse 7 of chapter 17. And he says this, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what Peter's talking about when he says, for the promise is for you and for your children. What's the promise? The promise is that God would be your God and you would be His people. The promise is that God has bound Himself by an unbreakable oath to be in a covenant relationship with you, to save you, to make Himself a blessing to you so that in and through you All the nations will be blessed. This is what Peter is talking about. And the sign, the sign of this is, of course, circumcision. Everyone born into Abraham's house was to be circumcised, even if they were not his children. If they are in his household, they are to be circumcised. Slaves. We see at one point in chapter 16 that Moses has a, a large group of people that follow him. He has 318 armed men that go out in battle to recover Lot. These, are, these are, have to be men at least from the age of 25 to 50. 318, that's his family. And they're all circumcised. Wait a second. Abraham imposes his religion upon all those people Did they have the free choice in that? Do you see how foreign the concept of covenant is to us? Everyone born in his house is circumcised. Because God works covenantally. He works covenantally through households. That's the way he has designed to lead his people to salvation. The essence of the covenant, as I said, is I will be your God and the God of your children after you, and this covenant is reaffirmed with Isaac and Jacob, who becomes Israel, and it's repeated in that phrase: "The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, He is their God," and He re- reaffirms that over. And we and we saw that even in Psalm 105 that Ken read, as He His covenant faithfulness extends to generations that come after. And the covenant was ratified in an oath ceremony of circumcision. And this, this showed two things. Circumcision being the cutting away of the foreskin. It's, a, it's first a sign of stripping away the flesh, which is the old man. It's a cutting off the old man. And, it, and two, it's a bloody sacrifice. It shows that the only way to be in a right relationship with God is through Blood. Through the shedding of blood we have the forgiveness of sin. So God works covenantally to save households extending the promise to Abraham's children. It's his children that will be circumcised on the eighth day. And the sign of the promise is enduring. It's the, sign, the, the promise that endures for all generations, the sign of that is circumcision. But what if you're not physically descended from abraham i'm not i'm not jewish ethnically i I wasn't hereditary from abraham i can't trace my lineage all the way back to him i want to look at two texts from paul to see how this this physical heredity this physical born into the house of abraham and then i want to show how that connects circumcision with baptism. In Galatians, Paul is in a sustained argument with the Judaizers who have faith in Jesus Christ, but are also calling on people to be circumcised and to keep the law. That's okay, you can have Jesus, but you must have Moses too. And there was some category confusions. And Paul says this in the middle of Galatians in chapter 3, verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, Or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promise were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say and to offsprings referring to many. But referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward. Does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and no female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. How is it that me, a Gentile, not having descended from Abraham, can be heir to the same covenant promise that God gave to him? To be his God and the God of his children after him. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has united together in one new man, both Jew and Gentile, so that there are neither Jew or Greek or slave, or free. There's not even male or female. Because in the old covenant, circumcision was only for males. But now, all are to be baptized. Why? Because the the promises of Abraham are expanded in the new covenant because of Jesus Christ. And now, it depends upon faith. It is faith that unites you to Jesus Christ and makes you an heir of the promises of Abraham, those who have that faith are his heirs. And you see that these these new covenant promises that Jesus fulfills—they're not radically divorced from the old covenant promises. They build on top of the old covenant promises. It's like a layer cake. You start at the very bottom, and then you build successive layers until the very top, the new covenant. But it's not a new cake. The new covenant is not a cake over here. It's built upon the promises of God. It's the culmination of all those covenant promises fulfilled in Christ Jesus. As Paul says, all the promises of God are in Him. Yes and Amen. Has God then ceased to use households in the new covenant? Did he begin with households, but now it's individuals. Our children now excluded from the promise. And the expansive nature of the new covenant that includes all the nations. Men and women, Jews and Greeks. There's no slaves, no Scythians, no barbarians. Everyone is included in Christ Jesus and now children are excluded. Everyone's included, but not your children. They are not privy to the promises of God. Peter and Paul say no. The promise is for you and for your children. What then has changed? What's new about the new covenant? Here we need to trace the lines from circumcision to baptism. The Westminster Confession is so helpful here in chapter 7, section 5 because it, it teaches that the covenant is the same covenant. It's the same covenant of grace that began in Genesis 3.15 that terminates in Jesus Christ. It's one covenant of grace, but it's administered differently in the Old Testament than it is in the New. It's the same, but it's administered differently. And that is in... It's because it's looking forward to Jesus Christ. It's anticipating Jesus in the sacrificial system, in the feast days, in the call to be separate and holy from the world around them. And that way, the people of God, Israel, function as a unique people meant to drive us to see Jesus, to call the nations to come into Israel. But then when Jesus comes as the author of Hebrews shows over and over again, it would be improper to go back to those old forms. Once the substance has come, once Jesus, the reality, is here, there's no way you can go back to the old sacrificial system. There's no way you can go back to the law that imprisoned everything in sin until Jesus Christ would come. Circumcision suited the Old Covenant, by looking forward to Christ. And here we have to ask the question, what does circumcision do? Does circumcision save you? Were all those Jews who were circumcised, were they saved? Is that their salvation? Is it just the act of being circumcised that saves you? The answer is, is of course, no. Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. Now, a helpful illustration is this. I have a membership to Sam's Club. That means I have access to everything at Sam's Club. I can go and purchase all of my products from there. I can get gas. I can get all my food, clothing, books. Not great books, but books. I can get tires, I can get my car worked on, everything, right? Sam's Club does it all. And I ha- because I am a member of Sam's Club, I have the unique privilege. How many have a Sam's Club membership? How many don't have a Sam's Club membership? You guys do not have benefits that I have. <laughs> I have exclusive access to Sam's Club. Now, do I have to buy everything at Sam's Club? No, the membership doesn't entail that I will get everything from Sam's Club, right? And here the illustration will break down, so don't, don't press it too far. But the, the thing with circumcision is that it, it makes the people a part of the covenant community. It gives them access to all those benefits, and they're great benefits. They get to hear the law. They get to see the sacrificial system. They get to have their sins forgiven, they have access, but, but it still requires faith to make use of them. They still have to, to grasp those things. They still have to take hold of them. And that instrument is faith. So what does circumcision do? Well, it gives you access, but it doesn't guarantee your salvation. It doesn't save you just in the act of circumcising you. It must also be joined with a circumcised heart what is objectively true of you, that you are cut off from your old man, you've been cleansed from sin, you've been made a part of the covenant community. That's objectively true. But it also needs to be made subjectively true. You also need to be conformed to the Lord in your heart. You have to love the Lord from your heart. Your heart has to be circumcised as well as your flesh. Those two things have to match up in order for you to be saved. And now, there's, there's a, a huge misunderstanding here. And I think largely because of dispensationalism, but I, but I think also the Puritans were guilty of this. And I, I don't like to speak ill of the Puritans. <laughs> but it, listen to this from Leviticus 18.5. The Lord says, "...you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules." If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, many have mistaken this text to to say that God teaches that in order for Israel to stay in the covenant, they must keep his law. That would make it a covenant of works, right? It would make it so that in order for you to experience the blessings of the covenant that I have given to you, you must obey my laws. Is that what it's teaching? Does it mean that those who keep the law shall then be given life? Like after they've kept the law, then at the end, God will give them life? Or does it mean that those who do the commandments are living? As in there is no life, no real life apart from the law of God. When you are obeying God, you are most fully alive. Not in the sense that you're trying to earn something. God is the one that gives life. And God is the one that can take it away. When you are obedient to the terms of the covenant, you're alive. That's what Leviticus is teaching. That's what God is saying throughout. When he says, walk before me and be blameless, he says, live by faith. Believe my promises because I'm your God and you're my people. And that means that you have to live a certain way. Because all my people look like me. The law was never designed, as Paul said, to lead to life. The law sets down what real life should look like. It's grace that empowers obedience. It restores our nature so that we live as we were designed to. Which looks, of course, like keeping the law. It's not Circumcision plus law-keeping equals life. It's circumcision plus heart circumcision, which is faith, equals life. Paul says in in Colossians 2.11, In him, that is in Jesus, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. You Gentiles are also circumcised, but not with hands. How? By putting off the body of the flesh. Okay, that sounds like circumcision. By the circumcision of Christ. What's the circumcision of Christ? Well, circumcision always pointed to a bloody sacrifice. And where was Jesus' bloody sacrifice? On the cross. Christ's circumcision was His death on your behalf on the cross. How were you circumcised? Because you were in Him. When He died, you died. Paul continues, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul says, you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. What's that? Your heart. Your heart was circumcised. How? Because you have been buried with Christ in baptism. That is, when he died, you died. And your baptism identifies you with him in his death. It's a sign that points to his circumcision being yours. You have been circumcised in... Paul connects that clearly to your baptism. And you've been raised with him through the powerful working of God. You were circumcised by being baptized. Not by hands, but with the Spirit. Paul connects those two institutions because one circumcision pointed to the same covenant promises that Christ fulfills and they're yours they're yes for you and for you the sign that those promises are yes is baptism does baptism save you no it's the same as circumcision it opens the door for access to all the benefits of Christ and it is a real privilege When our children fall away from grace after having been baptized, they are under greater judgment. Having come to Jesus Christ, having seen the glorious gospel, and having rejected and turned away from it. I don't want you parents to think of your children who may be wandering away and forget that the promise that God gave to be The God to your children is still true. And claim it. Claim that promise. God, you said that you would be the God of my children. And they are wandering away from the blessedness of that covenant relationship. Call them back and save them. Because they're yours. They are yours. They belong to you. And you promised that you would be their God. Hold Him to that promise. Because it's true. They were marked with His name. They belong to Him. And He is able. He is able. As long as it's called today, then there is hope of salvation for our covenant children who have wandered away. Amen? Amen. Now if baptism replaces circumcision... And children are heirs of the covenant promise, then it stands to reason they should be baptized. But what does... And we've already seen that baptism does not save you. It's not just in the washing away of the water that your sins are forgiven. It's by faith. The confession says the grace of baptism is not necessarily conferred at that moment. Baptism is suited to the new covenant because Christ has already died. The bloody, there's no more need for a bloody sacrifice. Baptism is not something that we do, baptism is something that God does to us. God marks you and says, Mine. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's who names you. That's very different from the Baptist conception. And their Faith and Message 2000 their declaration of at the, at the SBC, it says this, Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is prerequisite to to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. Now that is very different than what I have just articulated. There for the Baptists, baptism is something, it's my act of obedience where I declare my allegiance to God, to his resurrected Lord. It is my testimony of my faith. Do you see how subjective that is? Do you see how it's about me? It's about me declaring what I am doing for God. But God says that baptism is about what He does for you. It's Him marking you out as His people. And saying, mine. And we are passive recipients of it. It's not my testimony. Peter doesn't say repent and be baptized as a testimony that you believed in the gospel. He says repent and be baptized because the promises are for you. He's he's not saying that before you're baptized, you're not a part of the covenant and you don't have any of those benefits. And then once you get baptized, now you do. He's saying baptism is a sign that what was already true of you, that you're a member of the covenant, is sealed. Sealed. It's an outer confirmation of what's already true of you. Faith then takes hold of these promises and it runs until the finish finish line. Through baptism, you're brought into the church and given access to all the blessings of the covenant promise. But you must avail yourself of those benefits by faith. In a moment, the Herbert family is going to come forward and have their children baptized. And those children, by virtue of their being born into a covenant household, are already members of the covenant and have access to all the covenant blessings. Baptism doesn't make that reality true. Baptism is a sign that it's already true. Baptism only recognizes that they are a part of the covenant, that the promises belong to them. Amen. And in baptism, Christ through his minister, applies the sign and seal of what is already true. And this day will serve as a reminder for Keith Jr. and Amelia and Elsie's for their entire life that they are members of the covenant community of the church, which is the body of Christ and the only place of salvation. And we trust then, as we've already seen in little Keith's life, evidence of God's grace at work. So that as Keith and Sabrina nurture their covenant children in the faith, God will use the ordinary means of grace to conform their hearts to what is objectively true of these children already. By giving them the gift of faith. So that in old age, these little ones will look back and say, I never knew a day when Christ wasn't my Lord. Amen? Amen. Keith and Sabrina, can you bring your family forward? And Ken...